We are in Ether chapter 13, and in the very first verse, Moroni says he's going to proceed to give us the rest of the story. But it's interesting because he kind of interjects, still clear down till we get to verse 13, and then he restarts the story. But he tells us some important things. So he tells us that people rejected Ether, um, and it tells us that Let's see. Um, the words of the prophets, for he truly told them all things from the beginning of man, and that after the waters receded from off the face of the land, it became a choice land, a promised land. Wherefore the Lord would have all men who serve him serve him who dwell on the land. And so that's just an important testimony of how the Lord sees this promised land. The reason they're destroyed off it is because they don't put him first. And so that's really important for us to know. And actually, as we were talking about the election, um, I have a friend who's been very, very concerned about it if one candidate wins over the other. And it's just amazing to me how um, far apart the two sides are. Every single debate, I don't think anyone is switching opinions. It's just very uh, divisive time in our country very divided and um, very contentious. And the interesting thing was I have is I have felt so much peace. But what has given me peace is somewhere along the way, someone reminded me the prophecy that we will never fall because righteousness will win in the end. And so communism will not, socialism will not take over. Communism will not take over. We are promised. This is the promised land. As long as there are those who choose the Lord, and I know many who choose the Lord. And so I have just had this incredible peace because of that. Okay, so it does tell us as he continues on that he saw the days that there's a new Jerusalem, um, not Lehi's Jerusalem, it tells us, but it's the new Jerusalem and it's us. Um, and it's the millennium that Christ will dwell with his promised people here. And um, so he describes all of that, all will be renewed. And I love that it talks about, again, that our garments will be made white because it's that's the garments signify a covenant with our Heavenly Father. And in 11, it talks about gathering those who partake of the covenant. So again, it's through covenants. And what that virtually means is accepting the Savior and covenanting with Him. And He makes up for all we lack. If we call on His name and we repent, He makes up everything else. And we are His. And I love that. I just think that is so beautiful. Okay, so then we jump to... Um, well, let's read really quick verse 12. And when these things come, bring it to pass the scripture which saith, which saith, there are they who were first who shall be last, and there are they who are last who shall be first. And I like this. I had a student come and ask me about this years ago. And I was like, you know, I think it means that those who first were the covenant children of God, um, they, the Jews, they um, shall be last. And those who weren't the covenant children of God, so the Gentile, who are now his covenant children, um, the Jews shall be last. They will be first and the Jews shall be last. But it's it doesn't matter who's first or last. last. It's being gathered in through a knowledge of Christ and all become his. And it was interesting because I talked to another teacher and he was like, oh my gosh, that's really good. And, and I really had felt the spirit kind of 
impressed me that way, but he explained it a lot better and I can't remember what he said. But I really, what is important in all of that is we are all the Lord's and any who are brought to a knowledge of him, any who accept him as their savior and take upon them his atonement, we will all be part of that millennium where he will reign with us in the new Jerusalem here on the earth. And so that's what that all means. Okay, in 13, it tells us that Ether hid. During the day, he goes back to the story, Ether hid during the day, and at night he would come out and look and see what had transpired. And then he made his record in this cave in verse 14. And so then it tells us in 15, he was cast out from among the people and there was a great war. So he must have, the people must have still been aware of him. There was this great war and they sought to destroy Coriantumr, the, the king, um, by secret plans. So we know the Gadianton robbers are rampant, which we already knew. But it also tells us that Coriantumr in 16 had also studied war. And so it just became this huge war. And this is a really interesting verse to me in verse 17. But Coriantumr, he repented not, neither his fair sons nor daughters, neither the fair sons and daughters of Cohor, neither the fair sons and daughters of Korhor. And in fine, there were none of the fair sons and daughters upon the face of the whole earth who repented of their sins. So basically, no one repented. And the words that really stuck there with me is fair. And I've said before, if you remember the Anti-Nephi-Lehi's had their fair daughters stand in front of the Lamanites to try and soften their hearts so they wouldn't kill them. And I was just reading with my students, and it and when Christ comes in third Nephi's and third Nephi and says, Oh, all ye fair sons and daughters, and calls them fair. Well, if you look at fair, it takes you down to or it takes you to Mormon 619. And in Mormon 6.19, it says, O ye fair sons and daughters, ye fathers, ye mothers, ye husbands and wives, ye fair ones, how is it ye could have fallen? So this is Mormon at the end, and how devastated he is. And he's talking about them, and it goes through several verses. Well, if you look at the footnote there, it takes you to 1 Nephi 13.15, which says, And I beheld the Spirit of the Lord, and it was upon the Gentiles, and they did prosper and obtain the land for their inheritance. Okay, so promised land. I beheld they were white and exceeding fair and beautiful, like unto my people before they were slain. And so I just find this word fair. I think um, we have that in our head as meaning beautiful <laughs> and or good looking or something like that. And that's I was joking with my students saying, what does that mean? And one of them said, I just think it means that he looks at them like he loves them. And I loved that explanation. I don't know a better explanation because it obviously isn't that they're pure. It obviously isn't that they're innocent. I mean, none of the fair sons or daughters would repent. He loves them. And so I love that my students said that. I don't think it has anything to do with looks or state of their purity. But it's just that they're young and they're loved and they don't repent. Okay, so go to um, verse 18, many are slain, and it just goes through this whole war, and go to 20. In the second year, the word of the Lord came to Ether that he should go and prophesy to Coriantumr that if he would repent and all his household, the Lord would give to him his kingdom. 
and spare the people. And I think this is so interesting. Those words would give him his kingdom. I'm sure pride-wise, Coriantumr thinks you're giving me what? It's already mine. And I love the way this is worded because everything we have comes from God. And I just think that is something the more righteous people become. That is the way they think. My husband was in a bishopric in, in one of our wards and came home and said, you would just be floored, the generosity of these people. And I really think it's a state of the righteous when they really see everything is coming from the Lord and um, that it's all his. I think that is beautiful. So definitely um, that is why it says it that way. In 21, it says, otherwise they should be destroyed and all his household, save it were himself. So basically you're going to be the last one. You're going to see everyone destroyed. You're going to watch it and you're going to live to see it. And that's just always really struck me. Why would you not repent? I don't understand, but it really tells you the state of Coriantumr's heart and his pride. And so 22, it tells us he repents not, neither does his people. And not only that, they seek to kill Ether. So here's the state that they're trying to kill the prophet. Get rid of him so we don't have to hear this. So sad. Okay, so then we go through this continued state of war between Sherid and Coriantumr, and Coriantumr gets captive, and then he comes back, and his sons get the kingdom for him, and then he slew, he slew Sherid in verse 30. But it tells us in verse 27, it came to pass, Coriantumr was exceeding angry with Sherid, and he went against him with his armies to battle. And they did meet in great anger, and they did meet in the valley of Gilgal, and the battle became exceeding sore. And I just think, isn't this amazing that this is the constant state of his life? This is what he gets for not pairing with God. And so I wrote here, opposition of pairing with God. So we know when we pair with God, he doesn't remove trial from our life, but he gives us peace. And he gives us strength to endure trial. So what is in opposition of that? Opposition of that is pairing with someone other than God, which there's only one choice, Satan. Well, the author of contention is Satan. So fighting in one continual state of war. And that is just an amazing thing because where does war lead? It leads to death and absolutely nothing. It's the opposite of being... Um, safeguarded and gathered together when Moroni gathered his people in a refuge. The opposite of that, do you remember, was desolate, left desolate, which means empty and with nothing. And that is the state, what happens in war. We end up with nothing and death. Okay, so it tells us in 30, Coriantumr gives battle to Sharon and he, and he kills him and he's wounded. And then we get to 31, and Sherid wounded Coriantumr in his thigh that he did not go to battle for the space of two years, in which time all the people upon the face of the land were shedding blood, and there was none to restrain them. And I just, reading this, it just has to so resonate with Moroni and what he has just witnessed and what he has seen his father go through. And I just think, here we have so many examples in these scriptures of what life can be with God and what it is without him. And what a gift the scriptures are to really illustrate for us the 
the choices and the desires of our heart, where they lead, and what we can have ultimately, and what we can give away, and what our life can become. And um, one of the questions we asked in seminary is, what is God's happiness versus the world's happiness? And God's happiness is really we work for the next life. It's everlasting and a fullness of joy, and that doesn't come till the next life. World happiness is momentary. It is short-lived. It's for the here and now. And sadly, it means we trade the here and now for what is to come, for a lifetime of eternity of living with our Father and His Son. But it really is deciding what is most important. And the interesting thing is, I think even pairing without God here, deciding not to pair with Him here, leads to no peace. I mean, it is really a blip of time. And even watching these people just here and now, how sad it is that Coriantumr doesn't repent because we know where this leads. And how sad it is to watch numerous people in the scriptures who have decided to turn from God, Amlickiah, um, and it leads to no good end. And yet those who do decide to repent, those who pair with God, you've got Alma the Younger, you've got Nephi who stuck with him his whole life. You've got um, Zeezrom who repented. So many people, Moroni, who peace that God gives, the peace that surpasses all understanding, that he walks with us through our trials. Joseph Smith, who had a life full of adversity. And the question is, did they ever regret it? And you can read in their history, no. So obviously, that is the peace and that is the gift of pairing with God, and that is worth everything. I hope you know the church is true, and more than that, I hope you know how much our Savior loves you.